This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we will be joined by Chris Oppie, who is a professor of history at UMass Amherst, in just a few minutes because we want you to know about the Ellsberg Initiative, the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy. That's Daniel Ellsberg, of course. First, we have a bit of a fish wrap for you. Today's newspaper is tomorrow's fish wrap. A couple of legal cases we think we should note. First, a national case. This is a front-page story, as it should be, in today's New York Times. While accuser tells her story, Trump fumes. Let me read two sentences. The writer E. Jean Carroll on Wednesday told the Manhattan jury a harrowing story of being raped in the mid-1990s by Donald J. Trump in a department store dressing room, describing a brutal attack that she said she tried to fight off by stomping on his foot that has left her traumatized for decades. Even as she was testifying in federal court, the former president infuriated the judge overseeing the case by railing against the proceeding on social media. Mr. Trump, who has so far avoided the trial, was not there as Ms. Carroll related a tale she said she had waited decades to tell. What this trial will mean in the end is really impossible to know today. However, if Trump is found responsible, if there is a civil verdict against him, and it is for a large sum of money, I think this could actually have more influence on the race, the presidential race, than the indictments. Because it's one thing to elect a crook and a fraud and a liar to be president. I mean, all those things can be ignored by his base. But Electing a rapist, a convicted, well, convicted may not exactly be the right word in a civil proceeding, but a person who has been found by a jury to be a rapist, but that may be a bridge too far. Well, it's really interesting because, in fact, Bill, it is for being a liar that he's being tried right now. Oh, in this, part, right, the defamation. His defamation claim, right? And, yeah. the, and let me just explain to our listeners, the defamation claim is Trump came out and called her a liar, and now he's being sued not only for the rape, but for defaming her by, for calling her a liar. And, you know, customarily uh, in rape cases, you see people, the, the issue is, did they consent? That's more often than not what the issue is. And the defendant quite often just says she consented or he consented. But in this particular case, I can't think of a more vile comment than his comment, which is, she's not my type. That's his defense to a claim that he raped someone is she's well, not my his, type. Well, his defense is, I wasn't there, it never happened, she's making the whole thing up, she's trying to shake me down for money. And she's not my type. He did say that. That's why it's impossible, said Trump. She's not my type, right? He was disgusting, but it must it was misogynistic. Uh, uh, disgusting. Well, yeah, it is. It's disgusting, and... And like the Fox thing, it's the lying that seems to be, you know, uh, the subject of so many of these lawsuits. Well, as, as is often the case, and it's this is was of course true for uh, Nixon and Watergate. Um, uh, it's not the act that you get in trouble for, or that they get in trouble for. It's, it's for lying about and covering it up. Yeah. Another another case I think we should note. This is the front page, top of the fold headline in the Republican, and it just blew up my and the Globe, by the way. And, and, thank you, and it blew up my email uh, yesterday. Drunken driving cases in jeopardy is the headline. I think it's a bad headline, but here's the subhead, which is more telling. SJC, that's the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, rules 27,000 defendants 
can get new trials, a mass exoneration. This is a decision by the state's highest court that says that 27,000 driving under the influence or operating under the influence, OUI cases, uh, were subjected to faulty breathalyzer science, uh, to misfeasance and malfeasance by the Massachusetts State Police, and that all of those verdicts of guilty or continuation without a finding, which amounts to a guilty in a drunk driving situation, have to be thrown out because the prosecution used and intentionally used bad science and bad evidence to achieve convictions that never should have been achieved. Yeah, let me just amplify what, what, what the ruling says. Every OUI case in Massachusetts where a breathalyzer was involved, any breath test between June 1st of 2011 and April 18th of 2019, consisting of 27,000, as you said, Bill, uh, cases, uh, those uh, people have a right to be retried if they want to be retried. It's... Um, what is it with our our criminal justice system after the drug lab cases? Well, this is like the drug lab cases, another mass exoneration where the uh, prosecute, prosecutorial authorities in Massachusetts made massive mistakes and then tried to hide it. And what happened is when this became clearly an issue, there were 2,000 what are called worksheets to see whether or not these machines had been properly calibrated. 2,000 worksheets, and the state police voluntarily gave up 11 that were improperly done. It said the calibration was inappropriate. We now found out through this opinion there were another 432 worksheets that reported failures, which the state police did not disclose to, take a deep breath, prosecutors, defense attorneys, or the judges who ordered that they disclose those worksheets. It's pretty bad. This is a cover-up by the state police. Cover-up by the state police. We should note that the lawyer who brought the class action lawsuit initially on behalf of more than 800 OUI defendants in 2015 is uh, Joe Bernard, who is from Western Massachusetts, and he really deserves ex- enormous amount of credit for having stayed with him. He is to the OUI cases what Luke Ryan of Northampton is to the drug lab cases, where there were some over 30,000 uh, verdicts that were overturned because, again, misfeasance, malfeasance, and cover-up by prosecutorial authorities in Massachusetts. If you care about justice, we should be elevating those those men to heroic status. It's an unbelievable. Uh, and, and all the other lawyers who've worked on these cases, it's, it's truly an affront to justice. And um, kudos to the court for, uh, to the Supreme Judicial Court uh, for actually making this ruling. It's a courageous ruling. And Hopefully, these people all will indeed uh, be, be vindicated. People don't know. I just want to say, um, I haven't done an OUI case for about 25 years, but I did literally hundreds of them. And it ruins people's lives. It often results, in, especially in Western Massachusetts, where you can't get transportation, so you can't drive to work, so you lose your job. You end up in divorce court. You end up with custody of your kids at issue. I mean, these are, aside from just the expense of having a lawyer and, and all the, the fines. And it it's just so affronting, anybody who cares about fairness, to think about a cover-up that fails or refuses to disclose that the machine testing was un, at best unreliable, if not wrong. You might be interested to know what the Massachusetts State Police, who were responsible for this, had to say yesterday. So let me read two sentences. A spokesman for the Massachusetts State Police said the agency is reviewing the court's nearly 50-page decision. Quote, 
We are reviewing today's decision and its impact. The Office of Alcohol Testing in recent years has implemented significant operational improvements to ensure breathalyzer certification, case management, discovery process, and employee training are in accordance with all applicable laws and established forensic blah, 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 blah. You screwed up 23,000 cases. 27,000. And you sorry. lied about it. And now you've implemented, once you were busted, you implemented some operational improvements. Well, we just applause, applause. Let's turn, if we might, to Chris Hoppie, who is the director of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy and a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is the author of American Reckoning, the Vietnam War and Our National Identity, one of the best books I've ever read on the Vietnam War. And he is expert on the, that aspect of that part, epic of American history. Professor Oppie, thank you so much for being back with us today. It's a, it is an important day for the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy. Let's get to why today is an important day. But first, tell our listeners who don't know, what is the Ellsberg Initiative at UMass Amherst? Thanks for having me, uh, Bill and Buzz. Um, UMass acquired Dan Ellsberg's papers in 2019, and that's inspired a whole host of, of projects, including an effort to build a permanent Ellsberg Institute for Peace and Democracy. Uh, our mission is to advance uh, public awareness, scholarship, and activism around the overlapping issues uh, that have defined uh, Daniel Ellsberg's life and legacy, uh, peace, government accountability, truth-telling, First Amendment rights, nuclear disarmament, and uh, social and environmental justice. So we are trying to raise money to endow this, uh, this project to be a permanent institute. And we are, of course, inspired by the, the, the still brilliant 92-year-old Daniel Ellsberg, who recently released a, um, a letter to uh, friends and activists that was made public announcing that uh, he was recently diagnosed with uh, inoperable pancreatic uh, cancer. Um, so we feel a kind of special urgency to try to make progress uh, on this legacy project while he's you know, around to uh, enjoy it. Daniel Ellsworth, Ellsberg will be no forever known for his part in releasing what it became known quickly as the Pentagon Papers. So for those of our listeners who could use a bit of, ref of a refresher on what the Pentagon Papers were and are and why they mattered so much. Tell us, please, Professor. Yes, the Pentagon Papers uh, is um, a top-secret classified history of the Vietnam War from 1945 to 1968 that was commissioned by the former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. Ellsberg was part of a large team of people that compiled these documents and the analysis that accompanied it. And in those uh, years of the late 1960s, Ellsberg, who had been a government official in both the defense and state departments and had spent 20 months in Vietnam, uh, became increasingly uh, disillusioned with the Vietnam War. Having once supported it uh, by 1969, he had concluded that it was uh, immoral, unjust, and even criminal and uh, began to ask himself, what could I possibly do if I were willing to uh, sacrifice my career or even my personal freedom? Uh, he was moved by the, some 5,000 young American men who had, uh, were willing to and did go to prison for resisting the draft. So 
He said, what, if I were willing to go to prison, what could I do? And leaking these, uh, these important documents to the public and the press became the decision he made. And it exposed basically more than two decades of government lies and deceit about the causes, conduct, and prospects of, of the Vietnam War. And what the American government told and continues to tell the American people about the war, lie after lie after lie, for decades, and Republican and Democratic administrations, it didn't matter, the government just lied. We should strike the word just. I, I would like to note this, that in terms of Ellsberg's decision to copy the Pentagon Papers, and then we can go through how he released them to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and eventually, I think, some 19 papers, 19 papers total, across the country yeah. so that that genie could not be put back in the bottle, although the administration went to the Supreme Court, of course, to try to stop its publication. That said, I would like to just note that one of the persons most who most influenced Dan Ellsberg was Randy Keeler, a Western Massachusetts hero himself, who explained to Ellsberg why he was going to jail. Randy Keeler sent back his draft card uh, saying, I will not possess this. I will not comply with the law. I will not in any way be associated with this military uh, uh, horror show in Vietnam. And that was very meaningful to Ellsberg. And he was a war tax resistor. Right? Mm -hmm. He refused to pay right. uh, war yeah. tax. He, like uh, these other 5,000 who were um, imprisoned for draft resistance, uh, decided that he wasn't going to try to find some legal exemption or deferment or uh, um, he was going to say, okay, if if you want to imprison me, go ahead. And Dan heard him give a speech in 1969 at a War Resisters League conference and was so moved he had to go to the men's room and sobbed uncontrollably. And Randy Killer, we should know, is from uh, Franklin County. From Coleraine, along with his wife, Betsy Corner, who was part of that effort as well. So, uh, Chris Oppie, director of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy, this is a time where you're trying to raise money for the Ellsberg Initiative so that he can see the progress before, I don't know how to put this gently, before he passes. Um, the ways, today is a big day for raising money at UMass, so why don't you tell us about that? Yes, every year there's a fundraiser called UMass Gives, and uh, yesterday and today are, are those two days. So um, we really try to galvanize support around various UMass groups, but the one I'm hoping that you'll contribute to is the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy. Um, and um, uh, you do have to go to uh, a, an online site uh, to contribute. Uh, but So maybe, uh, maybe Bill can read the... Okay, yeah. it, so a couple ways you can do this. One, it's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, which I think is a... a, a, a acronym that a lot of people are familiar with. You put this right into your URL, right? B-I-T dot L-Y front slash Ellsberg UMass gives 23. Bitly, B-I-T dot L-Y front slash Ellsberg UMass gives 23. And that will take you right to the site. B-I-T dot L-Y front slash Ellsberg UMass gives 23. Or I take it they can probably, you'd be happy to get an email from someone. Yeah, if you want to uh, email me, uh, uh, A-P-P-Y, oppie at history dot umass dot edu, 
uh, happy to send you the, the link directly where you can contribute. Again, it's bit.ly front slash Ellsberg UMass gives 23. And we're happy to tell you that every dollar that you give up to the first $1,000 in this hour or if you're listening in the afternoon for that hour as well will be matched. Uh, so please, this is a time where we can stand up as a community and say we honor Daniel Ellsberg. You know, it it. it it's just worth noting, uh, we fish-wrapped a moment ago about uh, the state police covering up some wrongdoing and refusing to disclose documents that showed that these convictions were wrong. We talked about uh, former President Trump's, the lawsuit claiming that he raped a person, then defamed that person, uh, and lied about whether or not it happened. There's a defamation suit claiming that that was, in fact, a lie right now. What El- Ellsberg did was a model for democracy that will outlive all of us, I hope. And the way to, it is so great that right here at UMass that that collection is resting here and it is a treasure. We should zealously support the effort to maintain it for future generations. bit.ly front slash Ellsberg UMass gives 23 or your your email, Chris? A-P-P-Y at history.umass.edu. We'll be back with more on Daniel Ellsberg right after this. Woes. I can't touch my toes, I can hardly reach my knees And if the enemy came close to me, oh, I'd probably start to sneeze I'm only 18, got a ruptured spleen, and always carry a purse I've got eyes like a bat, my feet are flat, my asthma's getting worse Yes, think of my career, my sweetheart dear, my poor old invalid aunt You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started, and we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long, and you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. This is Jessica from Fitness Together in Northampton and Amherst. And while I know we provide next-level personal training, don't just take it from me. A few years ago, I had a stroke. Fitness Together saw me through rough days with friendly, professional, caring trainers. My only regret is I wish I found them sooner. I can't recommend them enough. Fitness Together with adaptable workouts for every need or goal in a private studio or virtually on the go. For a healthier, happier you, contact us at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton.
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with history professor at UMass Amherst, Chris Oppie, who is the director of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy at UMass. And today is the day where UMass gives. That is, we have the opportunity to support initiatives and uh, various uh, programs at UMass Amherst. There is a matching grant on the table. If you're hearing this, just let you, people know that you heard it on this show. You heard about it on this show, and you, your, your contribution will be matched dollar to dollar up to the first thousand. And uh, Chris, tell us one more time, if you, if you like, or would you like me to do it? I'll give people the information on where to go, bit.ly, front slash Ellsberg, UMass gives 23, bitly, as people talk about it, front slash Ellsberg, UMass gives 23, and you can give directly there, or you can uh, email. Or, yeah, if you Professor. email me, uh, I'll send you the direct link where you can make the donation. My email is oppy, A-P-P-Y, at history.umass.edu. We were talking during the break about uh, Robert McNamara, who was brought into the administration, to the John, John Kennedy's administration as Secretary of Defense, kind of this wonderkind from Ford Motor Company, uh, someone brilliant with numbers, and he had somehow figured out that the United States would somehow defeat uh, North Vietnam, uh, the Viet Cong, uh, in Vietnam, which makes, in retrospect, no sense, but it carried the day with smart people, yeah. including John. Was, Ellsberg was one of them. He, he Tell was, us about he that. He was uh, one of these so-called whiz kids that was hired by the McNamara Pentagon uh, to find a, uh, a smarter way to win the war in Vietnam. And uh, Ellsberg was very much a hawk. His political conversion is one of the most dramatic in our history, uh, though he was not alone. We should remember that millions and millions of Americans profoundly changed their minds about the Vietnam War. What changed Ellsberg's mind? I think it was a combination, but really um, re actually reading the Pentagon Papers, those documents going all the way back to the 1940s convinced him that we had, uh, the government had been lying about the war from the very beginning, uh, which included the support for the French reconquest of its Indo-Chinese colony after World War II and then subverted the possibility of a democratic solution to the war in 1954 with the Geneva Accords when the United States decided not to hold uh, reunification elections because they were Eisenhower was convinced that Ho Chi Minh would win a fair and free election. Ho Chi Minh, of course, being a communist. Right. Uh, on the other hand, he did say that the American founders of the American uh, experiment in democracy uh, were his heroes. Mm -hmm. That was interesting. Uh, I would like to know, if you can condense this history for us, why it was that the United States decided it would be a good idea for us to intervene militarily and otherwise in Vietnam after the French were defeated and hightailed it out of the country. Right. Well, one of the things the Pentagon Papers exposed was that internally, in private and secret, Policymakers were never confident that they would be able to do what the French had been unable to do, that the government they were supporting in the South never had the broad support of its own people, and that the best we could expect with massive military escalation 
was to avert defeat. That's what they were talking about internally while telling the public year after year, we're making steady progress, it's a difficult war, but we, in the end, will, will prevail. Uh, I think that uh, initially those policymakers were concerned about the so-called domino theory that if, if we didn't uh, stop communism in one country, it would you know, topple like dominoes from one country to the next. But by the mid-60s, I think most Johnson himself uh, really was uh, continued the war and prolonged and expanded it because he didn't want to be the first president to lose. Uh, it was a ma- matter of reputation and cre- you know, so-called credibility. On the other hand, at one point, Johnson was told we're going to increase the number of American troops in Vietnam, which had gone from a handful of advisors to 50,000 to it was up to some, what, 500,000? 540,000. And Johnson was told, nope, we need another uh, 200,000. We're going to be, have over 700,000 uh, troops in Vietnam. And the, Johnson said no. Right. He did. That was in March of 68, and that's uh, just the time he announced that he would uh, not run for re-election. And, pro- and Professor Chris Oppie, I just want, as an historian, what's really important about the story to me and about the Supreme Court case, which in the Pentagon Papers case, which 63, the court agreed with the news outlets that they should be able to publish uh, uh, these papers. Yeah, I'm not so, so sure the Supreme Court said that, Buzz. I think the Supreme Court said we can't stop it. It's this cat is out well, of the Well, they bag. said the government had failed to prove its case that the papers represented a dire threat to national and security. And that's my point, Bill. The, yeah. what, I, what I was saying is these papers did not, there wasn't tactical information, there wasn't classified sort of strategic stuff that was going to give the enemy right. a heads up. It was just history. How did we get here? He was just wanting to spread the truth, which you as an historian have been doing ever since. He was the first American uh, criminally charged under the Espionage Act of of 1917 for leaking uh, classified documents, not to a foreign agent or a foreign nation, but to the American public. To tell the truth. To tell the truth, yeah. We could call that public interest whistleblowing and... We've had many prosecutions in the 21st century on the same charges. Interestingly, and particularly appropriate to mention today, I think, is that the prosecution against Ellsberg was thrown out, not because the government necessarily agreed that he uh, was innocent, but because the government engaged in misconduct. Want to tell us about that for a minute? Yes. uh, Late in the trial of Ellsberg and um, uh, Tony Russo, who helped photocopy the papers, uh, the Watergate investigation had uh, found evidence that the White House had uh, ordered illegal actions against Ellsberg to silence him, including a break-in uh, at his psychiatrist's office, which became a kind of template for the break-in at the Watergate complex nine months later. When news of this ha- uh, broke, the judge in the case, the federal judge, had no recourse really but to throw, uh, to call it a, a mistrial with prejudice, so they could never be tried again uh, for that. So we don't know how the jury would have acted uh, or, or decided in that case. So fortunately, government misconduct and never happen, never happen again, and we're all okay now, right? <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> well, okay. I used to think that, but I was very naive. <laughs> uh, uh, Professor Chris Oppie, who used to be a member of the History Department of UMass, has now entered the creative writing program. <laughs> 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 Professor Chris Oppie, director of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy at UMass, Amherst expert on the war in Vietnam, author of American Reckoning, the Vietnam War and Our National identity urges you 
today to do our part to make the Ellsberg Initiative at UMass a permanent, important part of our, our valley, our community. Our B-I- nation. bit.ly front slash Ellsberg UMass gives 23 uh, bit.ly front slash Ellsberg UMass gives 23 or you can email Professor Oppie at, at appy at history.umass.edu and there's a matching grant so please give and give generously today thank you so much for being with us Thanks thank for you for what me. you do Chris thank you Shooting women, lots of fun. Try killing one that's pregnant, son. You'll get two for the price of one. Napalm sticks to kids. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Amherst School Building Project is getting the green light from the state. The Massachusetts School Building Authority voted unanimously Wednesday to support the Amherst Elementary School Building Project, estimated at around $97.5 million, with a construction grant that could be as high as $40.5 million. The move authorizes the executive director to execute a project scope and budget agreement and project funding agreement with the town. A townwide special election for the debt exclusion vote is scheduled for May 2nd. The state's highest court has ruled that nearly 30,000 people who pled guilty or were convicted of drunk driving charges are eligible for a new trial. Wednesday's Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruling follows an investigation into the state police office of alcohol testing. Investigators found test results from the breathalyzers were flawed because the machines were not calibrated correctly. Hamden DA Anthony Gullini voluntarily suspended the use of breathalyzer results in OUI prosecutions in 2019 after it was discovered that the Massachusetts Office of Alcohol Testing had been withholding information from defense attorneys in OUI cases. A more safe and accessible downtown Northampton was the topic of discussion during an online Mass DOT public forum last night. The public had the chance to see the proposed downtown Complete Streets corridor and intersection improvements on the Main Street project in the city. It includes improvements to sidewalks, a new separated bike lane, new curbing, pavement markings, crosswalks, and signage. Construction is slated to begin in the summer of 2025. Some scattered showers this morning, then drying out and brightening up this afternoon, a high of 58 to 62. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 34 to 40. Mostly cloudy, dry tomorrow, a high of 62 to 66. Showers drizzle, possibly some steady rain here on Saturday with a high in the mid-50s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los republicanos de la Cámara de Representantes aprobaron por poco el miércoles una legislación radical que elevaría el techo legal de la deuda del gobierno en 1.5 billones de dólares a cambio de fuertes restricciones de gastos, una victoria táctica para el presidente Kevin McCarthy mientras desafía al presidente Joe Biden a negociar y evitar un incumplimiento federal catastrófico este verano. Biden ha amenazado con vetar el paquete republicano que de todos modos casi no tiene posibilidades de ser aprobado por el Senado demócrata y hasta ahora el presidente se ha negado a negociar el techo de la deuda que según insiste la Casa Blanca debe levantarse sin condiciones para garantizar que Estados Unidos pague sus deudas. Los republicanos tienen una mayoría de cinco escaños en la Cámara y se enfrentaron a varias ausencias esta semana, lo que dejó a McCarthy casi sin votos de sobra. Al final, el orador perdió cuatro votos republicanos negativos y todos los demócratas se opusieron. 
En otras informaciones, la Corte Suprema habla con una sola voz en respuesta a las críticas recientes a las prácticas éticas de los jueces. No hay necesidad de arreglar lo que no está roto. La respuesta de los jueces sorprendió a algunos críticos y expertos en ética como sordos en un momento de mayor atención sobre los viajes de los jueces y las transacciones comerciales privadas. Eso ocurre en el contexto de una caída histórica en la aprobación pública según lo medido por las encuestas de opinión. Los seis conservadores y los tres liberales de la Corte parecen estar unidos en este principio particular. Sobre ética, establecerán sus propias reglas y policía entre ellos mismos. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome to the studio Randy Zuko, who is an owner and a worker and a part of the collective at Collective Copies and Leveler's Press, and we want you to know, and the reason we have Randy with us today is we want you to know about a 40th anniversary of this remarkable institution in the Valley, coming up on, appropriately, May Day, next Monday. Tell us, Randy, please. First of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, my name's Randy Zuko, uh, worker, owner at Collective Copies, and yes, it's a big day, uh, May Day, May 1st, uh, it will be celebrating 40 years of business for collective copies. Um, it will be a community celebration. We welcome everybody from 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. for a little uh, food, um, activities, demonstrations, tours, a historic slideshow, which should be very interesting. Um, and this will be at the This will premises. be at the Amherst Collective Copies, to be specific. Thank you. Uh, that is the mothership. That's where it was birthed. And so it's fitting that that is where it would be held. Um, there, and, is, there, is, there is an additional uh, Collective Copies or Lover's Press there is. store. You want to tell us where that is? That is in Florence, Massachusetts, 93 Main Street. And uh, you can find the Amherst location at 71 South Pleasant Street in Amherst. Okay. So for those of our listeners who don't know, Leveler's Press, perhaps we could learn something about the name, which would, I think, give us a pretty good indication of the politics. You're putting me on the spot with the name, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> But the, the, the name, I believe, comes from, uh, from England, yes. and it was a movement, if I remember correctly, of, um, I think it was the commons, basically, Uh, of, of community ownership. Um, I think if I, I wish Steve was here because he oh. could give you the, you could give you the full rundown, but maybe you have. Here's a, here's a, here's a quick synopsis. Thank you. Levelers, member of a Republican and Democratic faction in England during the period of the Civil Wars and Commonwealth. The name Levelers was given by enemies of the movement. Levelers was given by, the name given by enemies of the movement to suggest that its supporters wish to, quote, level men's estates. Yes, Leveler's <laughs> Press. Okay, so tell us a bit about the history and wh what we are celebrating, because there is a lot to celebrate. What Leveler's Press has meant for the Valley, and I get by way of disclosure as the publisher of my two books, um, uh, tell us. Okay, so um, Leveler's Press was birthed... Um 
about 15 years ago. Um, and I guess I'll go back a little bit to just talk about the history of collective copies and how sure, that came to sure. be. Um, collective copies. Em- emphasis, those, we should note, on collective. On collective. Uh, came to be um, as a result of a strike in 1980, late 82, um, into 1983, where the workers of a little local copy shop, I won't say the name, uh, went on strike. And um, after a months-long strike, uh, very much supported by the community, as you can imagine, in Amherst in those days, um, finally won union recognition. Um, And once they got back to work, the owners, of course, shut the shop down and uh, left the workers with a union and no place to work. And so... um, But there's more. There's more. And so the workers instead decided to do what they did best, start their own business. And uh, there was the birth of Collective Copies, which I believe opened their doors in the early spring of 1983. But our incorporation documents were purposefully uh, filed on May 1st. (laughs) On May Day. On on May Day to to officially launch the business. And so that's that's the day that it was... uh, and, Le- and Leveler's Press and came out of this in significant measure because of Steve Strymer. In, in significant measure because of Steve Strymer and his love of books and local history was the, was the primary impetus for that. And that was mostly birthed out of the Northampton's 350th anniversary, which uh, we published all of the books uh, leading up to the, and, and in, you know, the launch of the 350th celebration. So all the historical books for that and the historic Northampton. Steve Strommer, we should know, not only the uh, publisher of, uh, of Leveler's Press, uh, Amherst College graduate, uh, longtime Valley resident, lives in Northampton, and just a spectacular human being. Absolutely. And, and uh, uh, a mainstay to everything um, progressive in the Valley. You know, he's a founder of Commonwealth Printing way back in the days. Uh, also a co- cooperative worker cooperative and so honored to have them and so what's going to happen in the celebration so the the celebration will be like i said um the 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 morning time and during the day will just be a community open house uh open to the community to come just have food low-key socialize with us look at some slideshows do some demonstrations some tours of our of our press, of our bindery equipment, uh, see which how is it all, all interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting to watch. I um, watch a book be put together. Yeah. I found it fascinating when I saw that. Uh, yeah, peek it, behind the curtains. Yeah, peek behind the curtains, and then uh, from six p.m. till eight p.m., we will have a more formal uh, book reading and book signing event with uh, select authors um, who uh, will be reading from their books and uh, signing books and. We'll have 40th anniversary T-shirts and uh, swag. And you'll get to see the books published by Loveless Press over the past years, which is an amazing collection by people in the Valley and about and of the Valley. Really, what Loveless Press has meant to this community, it cannot be summarized in a few short words because the contribution is that extraordinary. And the books are that amazing. And we're celebrating workers' control and collectivism. Absolutely. And I'm telling you, I pinch myself on a daily basis that I can be um, a part of something that's so meaningful. 
to go to work and have it mean something to the community that I live in and to uh, be a small part of uh, passionate projects that people have poured their heart and soul into um, and to turn it into something real and tangible that they can hold in their hand and they can uh, sell and, and see on shelves and uh, is uh, something that is just amazing. Bill, Bill, they have so much to be proud of, but they're also, they want, they want to share it with the community on May 1st. May 1st, during the day for the tours and the sideshow, and what time is that? 10 a.m. till 2 p.m., and that's all, a, all day, and all, that's the, all, and Amherst that's, location. Okay, and then from 6 to 8 are the book readings, the signings, the discussions, the Q&A with the authors. Exactly. Thank you. Randy Zugo. My pleasure. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg coming up right here on whmp miss an episode of talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg want to hear the stories and perspectives of local business leaders click on podcasts at whmp.com talk the talk western mass business show financial fitness with the money doctor the hustler files panorama and more when it's happening here in the valley we're talking about it the only live and local talk in the Valley for the Valley, whmp.com. Are you gonna be growing tomatoes, growing salad greens, a big garden, or a few pots on the deck? Go to the Atlas Farm Store and get organic starter plants. Get tomatoes, get basil and other herbs. Get cucumbers, kale, eggplant, and melons. It's so easy to grow with organic plants and seeds from the Atlas Farm Store. Add color, too, with flowers and hanging baskets. Plant ahead, plant ahead, and grow all summer with the Atlas Farm Store in South Deerfield. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday the Blue Heron? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. The Blue Heron, the restaurant in the grand old town hall building in the center of Sunderland. Good food, good service, an ever-changing menu, and a signature martini you'll come back for again and again. There's nothing quite like the Blue Heron. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And this is our usual Thursday segment, Have Faith, and our special guest today is Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. And 
I was speaking with Carol some time ago, and I wanted to bring back bring her back on the show to talk about this, uh, her practice and of being a meditator. And I really wanted to hear how you see, and if I characterize this correctly, as meditation as a kind of spiritual practice. So maybe we should start with the basics, really, what is meditation, and then tell us how it fits as part of your spiritual practice, Reverend Bull. Thank you so much for having me on, both of you. I appreciate the time and uh, your spirit of doing this wonderful uh, show with a new name, Have Faith. Um, so uh, I thought it would be good for us to talk about meditation. Last time I was here, we talked about how to cope in difficult times. And I think meditation uh, can be a big support to all of us. Um, and there are, just to say, there are many types of meditation, um, but encouragement of meditation in our society, which is so outer focused, uh, is always needed. So whether, and I've been meditating for around 40 years, and, um, and my meditation practice has changed over that time because things change, um, but uh, it's, been, it's been a real way to root myself uh, in the world as it is. Um, so this, I, I'm kind of, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about this is for beginning people, people who may don't right now meditate, and also for people who are experienced, because we all go through a lot of the same things. So, um, so tell us what tell us what meditation is. Can you summarize yes. it? Yes, it is a, uh, so there's many practices, many different ways to do it, but it's basically a way of um, grounding yourself and deeply rooting yourself. Uh, in some traditions, they root themselves in the breath. In other traditions, they root themselves in a name of God or an image that's particularly profound for the people. Um, and that's what their focus is for the time of meditation. Um, there's walking meditation that Thich Nhat Hanh is famous for that. And there's also sitting meditation. Um, and if you can't sit, you know, cross, people get, when they hear the word meditation, it feels too out of reach or too difficult for people. So some people call this their quiet time in the morning. So it could even be in a comfortable chair with a cup of coffee for some people. Do you see it as a practice of self-awareness? Do you see it as a practice of relaxation? What is it for you? Yeah, I would say it's all of those things. Um, so in, in a particular uh, practice that I do, so I'm an interfaith person, I'm Christian and also practice a type of Kundalini Maha Yoga from the country of India that is sprung from the Hindu tradition, but is not itself Hinduism. Um, but I think uh, in that tradition, they, they talk about this, again, this deep rootedness. And they talk about the mind actually is like a monkey. Its job is to be on the tree 
and to jump from branch to branch to branch to branch. So when you sit down and try to quiet yourself or quiet your mind, what you'll often witness is this monkey jumping around, you know, oh, what should I have for breakfast? And what should, you know, how come that person treated me poorly or whatever? And then um, eventually, if you give enough time to it and with practice, your mind will still. And that's the point at which, you know, they've, they've studied uh, mindfulness meditators is where most of the scientific studies have been. Um, and they've studied your blood pressure goes down. There's all kinds of physical benefits to meditation. Um, but again, if meditation, that word feels too big, uh, you can have a quiet time in the morning and that can be the beginning of your practice. Is being present or mindfulness the same as meditation? It is in that particular path of meditation. In another path, it might be to uh, be closer to Jesus, for instance, or a different deity from a different tradition. It might be to, to begin to embody the qualities of a particular deity. Um, so it's different in each path. Uh, you know, in some paths, they want you to focus on a blank screen. And in other paths, they want you to just, in mindfulness in general, they're wanting you to witness what thoughts you're having and what's going on in your body as it is now. What prompted you to start a meditation practice? So I had been casting about for about five years um, for, I had tried different paths of meditation on my own. I looked at different books and things and tried to do them myself. Um, but I, I had always heard it was really good for you, and I, I'm into self-care, so that's what motivated me to do it. And I was working in, you know, a chaotic job situation at the time or whatever, um, or stressful, shall we say. And so meditation became a way for me to really take care of myself. Um, but the more I do it, I realize it's another way to take care of the world also, because when I'm calmer, when I can be kind to everyone I meet because of my meditation, that sprinkles out into the world, does it not? How often do you meditate? I meditate almost every day. And I say almost because some days I don't. And I was just telling my, my um, church the other day that, uh, you know, there's no perfect meditation. There's actually no perfect spiritual path either. They all have their pluses and minuses. Uh, things you like about them, things you don't like about them. Um, so we do the best we can. When I first uh, started studying this a particular meditation that I do, I did 45 minutes a day for five out of seven days for the first three years I did that. And do you do this, um, or did you do this, or do you do this in the morning, in the evenings? Is there a yeah, I do it in the morning. If I can't get to it in the morning, I do it later. Uh, some paths recommend you do 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. So it just depends on what you're able to fit in. And when you start, do you have a specific thought in mind? Are you trying to clear your mind? I, I want to understand a bit what it feels like for you to be involved in meditation or mindfulness at that moment. Yeah. So for me, the meditation is very much linked to my ideas about God. And um, not everyone has those beliefs, which is fine. Everybody's fine, whatever they believe. But it definitely uh, helps. And um, 
so my intent is to be connected to what I believe to be the divine, which can be the infinite mysterious spirit, ultimately, or other names of God. And that's why I'm sitting here. It's to be with my spiritual source. Um, and to there's uh, one of the pastors I know, he used to say in, um, in church, you know, thank you, God, for waking me up to live another day in your loving arms. And I love that, this sense of when I sit down for meditation, I am actually sitting in the arms of my creator, whoever that I believe that to be, including the infinite mysterious spirit. We just have 30 seconds, but I would love to know this. When you start, when you sit to meditate, to clear your mind, do you start with a specific thought or a specific process? Yes, I've been taught a specific process to do so. In the particular thing that I do, we do some purification practices with a candle and water and to kind of clear away whatever might be bothering us. And, um, and then I have uh, suggestions of what to focus my mind on. Okay, we leave it there. We've been speaking with the Reverend Carol Bull, pastor at the United Church of Ware. This has been Have Faith on WHMP Talk the Talk. Thanks so much. I didn't think it was possible for me to be an alcoholic. I was 24 with a good career. I thought that alcoholism only happened to middle-aged men and celebrities. I thought something else was making me sick, shaky, and afraid to face people. Then I found AA and discovered it wasn't something else. It was alcohol. AA helped me find a new life. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit Western Mass AA. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at NorthamptonNeighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And this is Talk the Talk, and I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And I am, I just can't express how excited I am to hear what Brian Adams, ever the innovator, ever the educator, he has something crazy for us today that I didn't see coming. Brian. Um, thank you, Buzz. Thank you, Bill. Um, and let me tell you something crazy. Let's start off, start with a little backstory here. Every day, in fact, multiple times a day, all of us flush away these, in, this incredibly valuable resource, nutrients, down the pipes into our waste stream. Buzz, Bill, Dan, I hate to say it, even me, your science and sustainability guy, are doing something completely nonsensical. Here we are flushing away incredibly rich substance, rich in nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, all these incredibly essential elements. And Brian, 
You're not talking about poop, are you? No, I'm not talking about poop. Bill, wait for the punchline. Oh, sorry. <laughs> holding these two guys back is going to be is going to be tough. Um, flushing away these, you know, essential nutrients for plant growth, and rather than using this product for agricultural fertilizer, here we are contributing to what can be horrific pollution in our waterways. We're literally peeing away a natural, sustainably produced fertilizer that can help grow the plants that feed us. I feel so guilty, Brian. You, know, you should. You should. Uh, in case you hadn't guessed, what we're talking about is urine. Not just your urine, Buzz, uh, but my urine, too. But not today's guest's urine. Um, Gretchen Savison and Julie Kavicki uh, work for the Rich Earth Institute in Brattleboro, this remarkable organization that recycles urine into fertilizer. Stop. Helping, no, no, it's, wait, what? Our listeners are saying, yeah, urine into fertilizer, helping to reduce water pollution and support sustainable farming. Gretchen and Julia, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having us. Thank, Thank you. you so much. So science word of the day, pea cycling. Not recycling, but pea cycling. Gretchen, maybe you can begin by telling us what is this all about and how it works. Well, yes. Thank you, Brian, for having us. Um, so like we, we like to say at the Institute that when it comes to nutrients, there is no away. Our nutrients go somewhere. And in the case of urine, it's, it's, most of it is sent to wastewater treatment plants. And we, or septic systems, <laughs> or septic yeah. systems, and we at the Institute reroute this urine into fertilizer, and we close this loop, and that is what pea cycling is all about. Yeah, and especially in the Pioneer Valley, um, in the Connecticut River watershed, um, a lot of those nutrients um, pass through wastewater treatment and septic systems, which, you know, were designed really well to remove organic matter and pathogens, but the nutrients often are released into our watershed and go down to Lo Long Island Sound, um, where they're fertilizing harmful algal blooms, which cause all kinds of devastating ecological effects, killing fish and, you know, causing neurotoxins to accumulate in shellfish. Um, and so, yeah, instead of fertilizing these algal blooms, we can divert our nutrients at the source and reclaim them to uh, provide local farms with valued fertilizer. So a lot of our listeners are probably like, wait, what? Pea cycling? Yuck! I don't want to deal with this. Um, how do you overcome this aversion that so many people feel about um, our own waste products? How do you get people to rethink this attitude about pee and make that switch from waste to resource? Yeah, well, um, Richard has done some social research on um, a concept called ascribed attitudes that we found. Often when talking to people about using urine as a fertilizer, people kind of themselves will think it actually makes sense once you talk to them about kind of completing these natural cycles and supporting agriculture. And often folks will think, oh, maybe my friends or neighbors or relatives will think it's odd, but I myself think it's okay. But then you go and talk to their aunt or uncle or whoever, um, and they also think it seems actually quite practical, but are concerned about what others think. So really we're interested in kind of opening up the conversation so that people can kind of come out in the open and um, share either what they had been doing in secrecy in their own home gardens um, or their, their interest in this kind of innovative, sustainable, yeah, fertilizer practice. <laughs> now, before putting urine into uh, 
agriculture fields or in the home garden. Uh, do you have to treat it? Do you have to compost it? Is it safe the way it is? Can I just go and pee on my plants? Um, or is there a... Yeah. Uh, is there a, 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 a... And I'm being serious here, guys. That's a good I question. Am. It yeah. is a great question. Um, how do you turn urine into fertilizer? Yeah, well, urine as, um, as itself is actually a great fertilizer. It's pretty relatively sterile. It's not 100% pathogen-free. Um, so for use in your home garden, though, it is, it is fine to apply it as, as is, um, no treatment necessary. And that's, that's mainly for, for plants that will be consumed by you and your household members. Um, now at the Institute, we're collecting from 200 plus urine donors in Brattleboro. And so we have all of their pee combined and we're applying it to, to farm fields. Uh, mainly growing hay and non non edible things, um, and so to treat that in case there's you know contamination from feces or or diseases, diseases people might have, yeah, um, we we pasteurize it. We have a pasteurizer that heats the urine up to 80 degrees Celsius for 90 seconds, and that renders it pathogen free and safe to use. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Rich Earth actually has a spin-off company called Brightwater Tools that's um, selling these pasteurizers to other places across the country who are interested in um, having sanitized urine for um, use at um, commercial or research uh, scales as well. You've I've heard the 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 name Richard a couple times now. Who is Richard? <laughs> uh, it's the uh, the Rich Earth that we all. Oh, Rich uh, Earth! Share you're saying? Oh, I thought it was Richard. <laughs> I thought it was Richard. Who is this Richard? It's Rich Earth Institute. You know, I was I was on your website, which is just such a great website, Rich Earth Institute. Folks should check it out. And there, there, you talk about ways to get involved. One is to donate money. The other is to donate urine. Now, many of us are familiar with worthy organizations hitting up for hitting us up for money, but urine no one's ever asked me for my urine other than my doctor and it's like oh seriously um how do you get you said you have 200 urine donors how do people donate their urine i mean how, how does that work uh, sure um so we have in the town we have two urine depots one in bellows falls rockingham area one in brattleboro and at these depots Urine donors can bring urine that they've collected in. Um, we have these pea cycling kits that are essentially a funnel over a big container, and they that is for home collection use. And our our donors will bring those to a depot where they can pump out their urine from the container, and um, we collect it from that. Yeah, and it's relatively simple. Um, and then for folks who kind of want to graduate to the next level of urine donation, we actually also do toilet installations of special urine diverting toilets so that um, the urine will collect in a tank in their basement and will come and do pump outs um, from those homes and a couple of area businesses as well. We have uh, a urinal that's collecting urine from the Hermit Thrush Brewery in downtown Brattleboro, so anyone who's visiting can donate that way. Um, and then we also have a urine diverting toilet at the Westminster West Library. I, I, I would think that, that um, or is there some concern about pharmaceuticals in urine? A lot of people take pharmaceuticals, your urine is full of them, right? 
uh, do does certain um, people uh, sh should certain people not donate their urine because of the amount of uh, medicinals and pharmaceuticals and drugs that there are? Yeah, that is a big concern that a lot of people bring up. Um, and similar to nutrients, there is no away with these pharmaceuticals. And so either they are being sent to the wastewater treatment plants and entering our water streams directly, or um, with, with as using as urine as a fertilizer, they're applied to soil. And the Rich Earth Institute has done a few studies on what happens to these pharmaceuticals once they enter the soil and are uptaken by plants. And we found that the, the level, well, the most common uh, pharmaceuticals and medicinal <laughs> compounds found in plants are caffeine and that the, the level that gets uptaken by these plants is so small that it would take a thousand years of eating one pound of lettuce every day to get the equivalent amount of caffeine as one cup of coffee from these urine fertilized plants. Not, and so, not with my urine, with my urine. <laughs> It could take, it take yeah. about, so, about two minutes. Uh, I wasn't thinking about your urine. I, I, well, uh, I was wait, waiting for Buzz to chime in uh, with that. I'm dying to ask the two of you, how did you get involved with this? I mean, it's, it's such a cool idea, and it's so amazing that there is an institute geared toward um, bee cycling and turning this resource from waste into, into incredible, valuable uh, plant nutrient. How, how did the two of you get involved? Gretchen, you want to start? Uh, sure, yeah. So about a year ago, I started working for a local compost toilet installation um, installer and maintainer. And we were setting up toilets around the valley. And he mentioned this place that um, does, does the same a similar concept of eco-sanitation on a larger community scale using urine. And I thought, like, wow, I should check them out. So here I am. <laughs> so you've essentially graduated from poop to pee. Is that right? Yeah, Rather than level. the opposite. Um, Julia, how about you? Yeah. Um, well, I started in um, undergrad. I was doing some research on combined sewer overflows in Troy as part of my undergrad uh, thesis, which is, um, yeah, was really kind of delving into some of the problems of this inherited uh, sort of linear conventional wastewater treatment that we have and was really curious to learn about what alternative options were out there and was yeah so excited to learn about the Rich Earth Institute and circular sanitation as opposed to the problems with the linear model. Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, human poop for a moment. Switch from urine, urine to, to poop. So many of us are ecstatic that spring has finally arrived. We can wait, can't wait to get out in the garden, get our, our hands dirty, plant, our, plant those plants, um, and work that composted cow manure into the soil. We totally embrace the use of, of cow poop for fertilizer, but what about human manure? Is there a place for that in terms of fertilizing crops as well? Yeah, um, well, I think um, a main reason we focus on um, the urine is that it has a vast majority of the nutrients. Um, so urine has about 70 to 80% of the nitrogen and 65% of the phosphorus in our waste. 
Um, so yeah, the urine is really a, the fertilizer and the poop can be a great organic soil amendment, but there are different regulations that apply to human or kind of poop composting. So that's kind of another reason why it's easier to start with the urine is, yeah, regulations yeah. about. But um, there absolutely is a place for it um, one day because it actually provides a lot of, of soil properties that are very complementary to urine. Urine is very nutrient packed and uh, gets that nitrogen and phosphorus into the soil, um, while the feces has more of um, like carbon and contributes more to soil structure and things like that. And so in combination, humanure and urine fertilizer could be a pretty powerful combination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We're a match made in the digestive system. <laughs> match made in the digestive system. There you go. We're talking with Julie Kavicki and Gretchen Savison. They are uh, members of the Rich Earth Institute in Brattleboro, Vermont, recycling urine into fertilizer. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about state, local, federal regulations. Is this legal? Can you do it everywhere? So stay with us. We'll be right back. listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. WHMP. For 50 years, the Center for Women and Community has provided trauma-informed leadership and advocacy services, including 24-hour free and confidential support for survivors and their loved ones throughout Hampshire County. April is National Sexual Assault Awareness Month. CWC is here for you. If you've been impacted by violence, call the Sexual Assault Support and Advocacy Hotline for information, support, and resources. Learn about volunteer and professional staff opportunities at umass.edu CWC. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well without unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit Hug HugYourMoney.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And it is Talk the Talk. It is not Potty Talk the Talk. We are talking about 
another way to uh, turn, uh, be a, this. turn waste into a resource. There you go. Uh, and this is really important because uh, water pollution is a significant uh, detrimental environmental uh, issue. Um, too much uh, nutrients in water coming from things like human sewage and human urine can really cause algal blooms. Plants are like, oh, this is great, and they go crazy, and too many plants mean that they're going to die, and the aerobic, oxygen-demanding bacteria go, oh, this is great, dead plants to eat, and they suck the oxygen out of the water, and soon we have um, an oxygen-deprived wetlands and rivers, and nothing can live if there's no oxygen in water. So it's a huge e effort to try to divert these, the nutrients in, in, uh, in human waste out of the waste stream and somewhere else. We're talking with Gretchen Savison and uh, Julie Kavicki. They are uh, both employed by the Rich Earth Institute in Brattleboro, Vermont, in diverting this incredibly important waste product, uh, urine, out of water and into a sustainable uh, something that can support sustainable farming. Um, we said we talk, let, let's talk about state regulations. Uh, is is it legal to be doing what you're doing? Is it legal to be collecting urine and applying it on agricultural fields? And does that vary by local uh, uh, laws, by state laws, by federal laws? How does that work? Yeah. Uh, so at the Rich Earth Institute, we're uh, certified by the state of Vermont. Um, Department of Environmental Protection to, um, because we pasteurize our urine, um, it's certified as a class A exceptional quality fertilizer that we can apply uh, to land anywhere um, in our state. Um, and that's because we follow the EPA's um, requirements for sanitizing. Actually, the requirements were developed for biosolids that come out of wastewater treatment plants. So we meet those specifications, even though we know that, yeah, urine is very distinct from biosolids in terms of potential contaminants. Um, but yeah, every state has kind of their own uh, system of how they choose to regulate urine fertilizer. So it's kind of a different process um, in each region. Um, but at the home scale, anyone can reclaim their urine without needing to get certified. Um, and we have a home garden education program called Urine My Garden, where we teach folks how to do that anywhere. Um, and we have webinars um, every month about how to do that at home. In the Happy Valley, we need a bumper sticker, reclaim your urine. I think that would be a good a, a, a good one. We were talking at break, and, and um, Bill was bemoaning the fact that dogs come and they pee on his grass, and the grass turns uh, yellow. Uh, is too Brownish. Much, brownish. Brown, brownish. <laughs> um, is too much of a good thing a bad thing? I mean, can there be too much urine put onto, onto crops that can interfere with their ability to, to grow? Yes, absolutely. Um, too much nitrogen applied to any plant will kill it. Um, and so that's likely what's going on in your lawn. Um, we've done some calculations at the Rich Earth Institute and somewhere between half a cup and one cup of urine is what uh, your typical like tomato plant might use throughout its whole life. Um, and so thinking about that in terms of what what you're applying to your lawn and plants, um, yeah, too much of a good thing will be too much of a good thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and often we recommend actually diluting the urine with some amount of water before you add it to your plants so that um, you're, yeah, making sure you don't overapply. Yeah. Can Could this be done with indoor plants too, or is it just outdoor plants? Yes, it can be done with indoor plants, but 
we would stress the the dilution more mm -hmm. with indoor watering. Mm -hmm. And there's also a um, there's a fellow in France who developed a device that is particularly good for fertilizing indoor plants um, called the solar dripper. Um, and it uses a sort of soda bottle that screws into a um, spigot that um, inserts into the soil. So the urine is applied directly um, underground into the soil and you don't have to deal with potentially smelling a little bit of the urine um, in your in your house with the house plants. Yeah. What one of the things that that uh, that really upsets me about um, the the waste of urine is that often every time uh, people pee into into a toilet, they they flush that down, and there go a couple gallons of really you know high quality water just out with a tiny bit of bit of pee. It's just a it's a it's a hor horrific way to 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 waste water, particularly in arid places of. Of, of the country, I'm thinking of the American Southwest, um, in developing countries that have such significant water shortage issues. Uh, is this, is pea cycling catching on in say the arid Southwest in this country or in, in developing countries where water use and water shortage is such a crucial issue? Um, yeah, I think especially at the home garden scale, there is increasing interest in um, yeah the water saving benefits of um, of doing this. Um, and there are a number of, um, for example, in Niger, there's a farmer to farmer education program where they taught small kind of uh, women farmers how to use their urine as a fertilizer, also for the you know free fertilizer benefit. Um, so there are around I think three to five thousand farmers in the country of Niger that are now using their urine as a fertilizer. Uh, through that program. So if people want to do this for their home gardens or they want to actually contribute to uh, um, your organization, the Rich Earth Institute, how do they get in touch with you? What what can home gardeners or urine potential urine donors do uh, to, to, to make this exciting thing happen? Yeah, well, a good first step for home gardeners is um, coming to one of our upcoming Year in My Garden webinars. Our next one is on May 10th. Uh, and if you go to the events page um, on our website, you can sign up for that for free. Um, we also have a how-to guide for how to do this in your own home garden. Um, and then for folks who find themselves in the Brattleboro area, um, you can just, yeah, visit our donate urine page uh, to, to learn about how to contribute your, your, your urine to our depot in downtown Brattleboro. And what is the website that, uh, yes. again? Uh, rich, richearthinstitute.org. Um, rich, or, or you can find us on social media at, at PeaceCyclers. The Rich Earth Institute.org. Um, and again, check out the website. It re listeners, it really is interesting. One thing that I read that I found so interesting is adults produce between 100 and 150 gallons of urine per year, and containing about nine pounds of nitrogen and um, a little less than a pound of phosphorus. Use, used to fertilize grain, this is enough to to grow wheat for making a loaf of bread every day of the year, which I thought was really interesting. We live here in Western Mass, right? What, wouldn't that be a great selling point for bakeries? Uh, if your bread is grown, uh, harvested with locally harvested Happy Valley pea, you can get it here. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, that's my idea. I own it. We've been talking with Gretchen You Sanders. own it. You're going to end up in a penal colony. Oh, golly. Oh, my goodness. Uh, on the, I hate to end on that note, but I, uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, we've been talking with Gretchen Savison and with Julia Kavicki. They are um, uh, peace cyclers. 
at the Rich Earth Institute in Brattleboro, Vermont. Check out the website. Go to the webinar. Uh, recycle your pee. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Brian. Yes, thanks, Brian. That was, it really was fascinating. I, I had no idea. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Amherst School Building Project is getting the green light from the state. The Massachusetts School Building Authority voted unanimously Wednesday to support the Amherst Elementary School Building Project, estimated at around $97.5 million, with a construction grant that could be as high as $40.5 million. The move authorizes the executive director to execute a project scope and budget agreement and project funding agreement with the town. A townwide special election for the debt exclusion vote is scheduled for May 2nd. The state's highest court has ruled that nearly 30,000 people who pled guilty or were convicted of drunk driving charges are eligible for a new trial. Wednesday's Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruling follows an investigation into the state police office of alcohol testing. Investigators found test results from the breathalyzers were flawed because the machines were not calibrated correctly. Hamden DA Anthony Gullini voluntarily suspended the use of breathalyzer results in OUI prosecutions in 2019 after it was discovered that the Massachusetts Office of Alcohol Testing had been withholding information from defense attorneys in OUI cases. A more safe and accessible downtown Northampton was the topic of discussion during an online Mass DOT public forum last night. The public had the chance to see the proposed downtown Complete Streets quarter and intersection improvements on the Main Street project in the city. It includes improvements to sidewalks, a new separated bike lane, new curbing, pavement markings, crosswalks, and signage. Construction is slated to begin in the summer of 2025. Some scattered showers this morning, then drying out and brightening up this afternoon, a high of 58 to 62. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 34 to 40. Mostly cloudy, dry tomorrow, a high of 62 to 66. Showers drizzle, possibly some steady rain here on Saturday with a high in the mid-50s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. It's lawn care season, so remember, what you put on your lawn and garden can wash with the next rainstorm into our rivers and lakes. Here's two tips for better lawn care. One, test your soil. Find out what your lawn needs before spending money on product. UMass Extension offers testing. Two, leave grass clippings where they fall. When mowing, this will put nutrients back into your lawn naturally. Healthy lawns, healthy waters. Brought to you by the Connecticut River Stormwater Committee. Learn more. Click Lawn and Yard Care at thinkblueconnecticutriver.org. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenville Cooperative Bank. 
At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th, be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co And this is our Take 5 segment with the always fantastic Ruth Griggs. I always love what you do. What do you have for us today, Ruth? Thank you, Buzz. That's a really nice way to start the start a, a, a happy Tuesday and end a happy Tuesday, a Thursday as well. Um, so today we have Lincoln Allen, who is the managing director of the Drake in Amherst, which is the... the we can't say new anymore because yesterday the Drake and Amherst celebrated its one-year anniversary. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Quite an accomplishment. Um, yeah, we're happy to be here. Well, and, and I, you know, I go to the Drake a lot because, as, as probably all of the listeners know, I'm a, a big fan of the Northampton Jazz Workshop. So the, the Drake reached out to Paul Arslanian, who leads the workshop, uh, you know, about a year ago and said, would you like to host the jazz workshop here at the Drake? Which was like, well, hi, geez, this, this sounds like okay. So now the Northampton Jazz Workshop is there um, every other Tuesday. And um, we thank you for that. It's become quite the scene over there for the Northampton yeah. Jazz Workshop. Yeah, it's been a great cornerstone uh, of our programming and something, you know, we don't, we, ha we have a lot of... Um, you know, rotating one-off events, and that's something that people can kind of depend on there being every other Tuesday um, as a, you know, regular program. It's been kind of really important for us to have, so it's yeah. a great event. So, Well, and the, I think one of the reasons why it's really taken off for the, um, the, the workshop there is because of the proximity to the students. And as, as you know, the model of the workshop is that they have the special guest artists come in and play with the, tri the Green Street Trio for an hour, an hour and a half, and then it opens up to a jazz jam for anyone who wants to bring their voice or their horn or their sticks. And, and I, right. I just have to add that there's no cover. So for students who really, you know, at that time of our life, most of us didn't have very much money. And here's a chance to go and hear top-rate kind of music and for those who are musicians to participate right, and in to play with the artist, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, last week um, there were students on stage playing with Jimmy Green, who is an internationally touring artist who played with Ron Carter at the Jazz Festival last year. So it's, and, and that has been really meaningful to Paul Arslanian because education is a really important part of what jazz musicians do here in the valley and so having that opportunity for those kids to just walk over there 
um, is is really making him happy. So I just want to do a special thank you, Lincoln, for um, being such a wonderful host and and kind of hanging in there in the beginning. You know, you never quite know, but it's really it's really rocking now. Yeah, at it's, this point. it's been great to see that program grow. And um, yeah, we're thankful to Paul and all he does uh, to bring great guests and you know in turn music students and people learning learning the music uh, to the venue. Do you know if the students who come and play are in bands at UMass or at the high school or whether they are music majors? Yeah. Who are they? Yeah, I've gotten to know some of them. Um, and sometimes you'll see them uh, on stage other nights, too. Um, there's one, his name is Matt. I don't know his last name, but he, you know, he was on, um, you know, we, we do a lot of uh, programming with um, student bands. So, you know, we did uh, with WMUA, um, the college radio station at UMass, uh, they do a uh, battle of the bands. And some I noticed some of the, the students that sit in the jazz night and have really great jazz chops are also in like, you know, a funk band or a rock band or whatever. And you'll see and you're like, oh, I've seen him on Tuesdays before. And, and I, I just show want to up add, in another band. Yeah, it's not just the music department at UMass, music department at GCC and at HCC Amherst College, well, yep. Amherst College. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is people like Jimmy, the tra- saxophone. I mean, the uh, trumpeter who is eighty-eight years old, who who used to play, um, and he'll he'll bring his his horn and join in these jams. So you'll see people who are right. seasoned players with oh, these. Oh, you're young... talking about uh, Chichi. You're talking Chi-chi. about Chi-Chi, yes. who's the octogenarian trumpet player from Rome who doesn't speak English very well and has got incredible trumpet chops. Right. So, yeah, they, they also... And lives yeah. here in the Valley? And he lives in the Valley. He lives, I think, in Hamden County. And yeah. he comes up from time to time. But and we have active musicians who really are professional musicians who come and for the jam and play with these students. Yeah, sometimes yeah, Felipe Salas or you know will show up because his students are there and he wants to support his students. I right. mean, it. You never it, know who's going to come in. Yeah, and that and you know it, it. I don't mean to dominate the conversation about the workshop, but I think that is the beauty of the Drake, is that it's in a college town, where. Students didn't have like a nor- natural place where they could go to play in public in, in, in the past. And that's what's so amazing about the vision. And I want to talk about that for a little bit. Let's, let's make, you know, I know the Drake. We all know the Drake here in this room, but a lot of our listeners don't. So Lincoln, tell us a little bit about the, again, the vision and what was the impetus behind creating the Drake a year ago? Yeah, definitely. I mean, live music first and and foremost, um, but, you know, just like you you touched on, you know, community is a big part of it. And, um, you know, that that event specifically is a great uh, connection to the community, really kind of invites people into the room to actually, you know, not the just Northampton Jazz Workshop. Exactly. Yeah. Just to, um, to, you know, not just to see music, but actually get on the stage and kind of, you know, feel like they, they, you know, have a place there to, to perform as well as see music. Um, and of course, keeping that, you know, open to people at no cost is, is a big part of it. Um, you know, uh, on the second Tuesday of the month, um, we also have open mic, which is a similar um, similar approach in that you know it, it opens up uh, the stage to people to be able to perform, and of course you get all kinds of you know varying degrees of um, you know musicians from people just starting out, might be their their first time playing on stage, or it might be somebody that you know um, is really experienced just coming to kind of workshops and new songs. So you get you know musicians that may have um, a professional band you know coming just to play just to get on the stage to get some some more new work out there um, so that's been a big uh, part of the the 
the mission, I guess, is to, to open up um, to different pockets of the community. Including East uh, Amherst High School, as I recall. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, we have an event coming up with them. I think it's May 30th. Um, so um, their, their jazz program, um, we've done something with, with Karen Nye, who's the director there. And she um, brings her student ensembles as well as some of the faculty will get up and play. Um, some other faculty from the high school um, has done uh, benefits for the school and um, a number of different events. So we'll do some community programming there, and those are usually free as well. That's fantastic. That's so important. I have a question. Mm-hmm. I love all your community program. Yeah. I love all these free gigs. Yep. I love the way people can come and play. I love the way you're in community. You are part of the community and and a community. Uh, at the risk of asking a bad question, uh, what do you do to stay in business? <laughs> well, so yeah, that's you know it is. Um, we do a lot of events. That's um, you know only only one of the avenues of of types events of events that we have. Um, you know, most most of the time there are, you know, our events are ticketed. We're selling tickets. Um, we have a bar which has revenue. So there's there's a lot of different uh, angles there. But um, yeah, for the most part, if you're if you're there on the weekend, you know, you're purchasing a ticket, you're seeing a national act um, on a Friday or Saturday. And, you know, on some of the, you know, weeknights we may have, you know, free jazz or a, a night with a high school or a college, you know, presenting anything to members of the community, but um, yeah, lots of different things for everybody. So So this is your first anniversary. Could you just spend a minute and tell us how in the space of a year you take this old building in Amherst and various lives over the course of decades um, and turn it into a significant venue for musicians from up and down the East Coast and nationwide for that matter? Yeah, it's really been kind of a whirlwind, um, and most of the credit there goes to uh, Gabrielle Gould, who's the um, director of the Downtown Amherst Foundation, which is the nonprofit that really, um, you know, secured the initial grants, kind of came up with the idea um, long before that space even existed, ju- just that Amherst needs a music venue. Um, and that was sort of the vision before there was even a space or a concept or anything. It was just how can we get music to this town, some actual nightlife, um, some arts and culture support. Um, that's sort of the mission of the Downtown Amherst Foundation. And um, that's really how it started. Um, well, and having that kind of financial support bill is so crucial um, because, you know, otherwise, yeah, it can be really hard for event venues to stay in business. If they just depend upon ticket sales and, and you know, and drink sales, That that's, but they have this Amherst Foundation, which you know, last year, Amherst College was contributing tremendously to Amherst College has contributed a seven foot, you know, Steinway Grand to the Drake. So th- because it's because a found- Amherst College had a leftover Steinway Grand. <laughs> what yeah, the heck? They, they, they had an extra one in storage. <laughs> they that day. Yeah. And they didn't, have to, they didn't have to move it very far, just up the street. So that worked out. Perfectly but it was a very us. generous. Act. The other thing Absolutely. I want to point out in terms of downtown Amherst and the benefits of the Drake, you do not serve food at the Drake. So people, but you welcome other people to, uh, I mean, welcome guests to buy food, bring it to the Drake. Yeah, because we, you know, part of the idea there was that we didn't really want to compete with other local businesses. We wanted to kind of uplift and compliment them. So, um, you can get a bag of chips at the Drake. That's about it. Um, we don't have a kitchen, but you're welcome. You have to, a bar too. You we have a get, bar. Yes, yeah. you can get drinks, and that also supports the business in turn. Um, 
Uh, but yeah, as far as food, um, you know, there's a lot of great restaurants downtown already and a number opening up um, since we've been there, uh, including one right below us. Um, White Lion Brewery is going in right below us with a, a brew pub. Um, and you're welcome to bring in food um, from any other Which is what I do. Uh, I'll go and I'll get some food. I'll take it out. And Dan and I were the opening night. Oh, okay. Uh, Excellent. Yep. Uh, eating at one of your tables. And we and we the, the night that Drake opened it, which was so fantastic. Yeah, it's a good it's a good system, um, which not a lot of places have. So Well, and I think that, you know, I was so excited to see the front page of the Gazette this morning because there's this very cool photograph of the um, the the brew the brew, what do you call that big barrel? A tank. I a tank, a brew the tank, brew yeah. tank um, being lifted by a crane into the space below the Drake. And there's Mike Yates, who's the brewmaster for White Lion, who is overseeing this. And so it, it, I can't help but think that with the Drake there, that was an attraction for White Lion to come into Amherst. I mean, that's huge. It's right. huge. And it's right below. So, I mean, people are going to be able to enjoy getting food there. I know that hi historically they've collaborated with Highbrow uh, Restaurant, and I, I don't know if they are in this case, but, you know, the food will be good, and it'll be so easy for people to just go down there and get food, which yeah. is all boats rise. A, lo a lot of... Um, you know, local businesses, restaurants that we we talked to say, oh yeah, we, we had a huge pop after that show got out. You know, so there's you know it's bringing bringing business to to other areas of Amherst besides just us. Right, that's wonderful. And just think of how many plants Bill can be fertilized. By. Yeah, <laughs> an added bonus based on today's show. <laughs> right. I, I would like to ask you this because yeah. it strikes me that uh, it's. In addition to all of the benefits that, and all the contributions that you've you've mentioned that we've mentioned uh, that the Drake brings, it also is an economic driver. Amherst is not going to have heavy industry coming, but it can be a place where people buy experiences. Right. And it seems to me that you are adding immeasurably to that. And I'm wondering if that was part of the vision or it's something that simply is developed. Yeah, absolutely. That was definitely part of the plan. Was um, you know to 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 bring people you know from that, you know, maybe already live in the valley to, you know, across the bridge or from other areas, Springfield, um, you know, Vermont, you know, regional areas, but also, you know, to have concerts of the caliber that you might see in bigger cities. Um, you know, we're a great stop on a routed tour from, you know, Boston or New York, stopping in Amherst to then, you know, in, invite people from those cities that that might not be able to get tickets in, in their city to say, oh, let's, you know, what, let's make a weekend of it and um, head to Amherst. Ruth Griggs, a marketer extraordinaire. What do you think of Bill Newman's idea that Amherst sells experiences? <laughs> <laughs> we'll take that to Gabrielle Gould, and we're going to talk more about her and how she's being honored tonight by Business West. But the drakeamherst.org, before our break, I want you to know the drakeamherst.org will be amazed by the lineup um, that Lincoln has of musicians coming to the Drake. We'll be right back. Money just changed everything. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. 
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues or demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday the Blue Heron? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. The Blue Heron, the restaurant in the grand old town hall building in the center of Sunderland. Good food, good service, an ever-changing menu, and a signature martini you'll come back for again and again. There's nothing quite like the Blue Heron. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. No matter your age, love is always a hot topic. And so is love that goes south and everything in between. Join Young at Heart at the Academy of Music Theater in Northampton on Sunday, May 7th at 3 p.m. for The Love Show, featuring an unexpected combination of songs. From Lizzo to Marvin Gaye and Rihanna to the Buena Vista Social Club, Get ready to hear all about the dimensions and experiences of love and sex. If you want a lover, I'm your man. Young at Heart, backed by the fabulous Young at Heart Band, Sunday, May 7th at 3 p.m. at the Academy of Music in Northampton. Tickets are available through the Academy of Music box office. Call today or get them online at aomtheater.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And of course, Ruth Griggs, this is our Take 5 segment, and she's talking to the manager of the Drake and Amherst, Lincoln Allen. Yes, and if you want to follow along on your phones or your laptops, it's thedrakeamherst.org. Just scroll through the wonderful shows that the, that they have coming up. Lincoln, like, how are you getting all of these performers? You've got, you must have, like, 12, 15 performers coming, like, in the month of May alone. Yeah. How are you doing this? Yeah, I mean, we've really been loading up the calendar, especially, um, you know, as we round the corner, um, of our first year, uh, really just trying to test out as many different genres as we can, you know, connecting with different people, different fans of different genres, finding out what works, um, and really just kind of exploring everything that we can. Um, you know, we're working with a lot of talented um, promoting companies that have really great reach to national touring artists of note. Um, and the more great shows that we put on the calendar, you know, agents and people notice, and we're getting more inquiries direct to us as well instead of instead of outreach, um, which makes it a lot easier. Um, the quality of artists looking for a performance at the Drake is rising as we continue to do more and more, um, you know, premiere events. So that's I, I know that exciting. feeling that's happened to the jazz festival as well. Right, the Northampton right. Jazz Festival, you were seek and find and seek and find. Yep. And now people are coming to us, which is an important 
turning point in the success sure. of, of an operation. But let me just say, and, 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 and certainly embellish on this, but what I've noticed over this past year at the Drake is that, you know, it's it started out as, you know, this kind of black box, you know, sort of performance theater mm-hmm. a- environment. And over time, you've added an improved sound system, a great sound, you know, engineer, um, wonderful lighting, um, photography. You've created an ambiance there. And so that I, I hear from musicians that the word is out that the Drake is a great place to perform because you've got that su- superlative piano and now you've got a really good sound system and a sound engineer. And that, that counts Yeah, that's definitely reputation. been, I would say, probably the, you know, the number one most important thing is you know, the artist experience. Um, you know, we wanted to have a really comfortable green room from the start, really great sound system, which was installed by Klondike Sound out of Greenfield. Um, those are the things we really wanted to make sure that we got right from day one. And then all the little, you know, bells and whistles like you mentioned, like we, like adding couches or putting photos on the wall. You know, those were the things that in, in the rush, the construction, we, we didn't have on day one, you know. And, and over the course of the year, we've been able to yeah, put some candles on the wall and, you know, add a curtain here and, you know, extra soundproofing here. Um, you know, continuing to prove really show to show, week to week. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the core experience of the artist is really important and, you know, um, we find a lot of you know talent that comes through. They say, "Oh man, I, r- I really love this room. I've got another. I've got another band that I want to bring here." You know, and that's it. Kind of keeps building and building. Word of mouth, you know, and yeah, other... that's that's a that's a great place to be. And I I do think that there is something very true about how this portion of Western Mass is on the way to something it for is. these musicians from right. Philly, from New York, from Boston to you know, it's right. on the way to Burlington or Albany or. We're at Montreal, and they do stop here. And I think that, you know, the Drake um, is is uh, benefiting from that reality of Western Mass, which, sadly, Northampton used to benefit from that as well. And we sure. all, you know, understand that that's not happening to the degree to which it did before. But thank goodness it's still happening in Western Mass. And, you know, to to the the point where the Northampton Jazz Workshop move to the Drake sure, in Amherst. Right, right. And and I think there's there's a little bit of confusion. It's like, well, why would the Northampton Jazz Workshop be in Amherst? Well, the sad truth is that there really wasn't a place for the Northampton Jazz Workshop to be housed in in on this side of the river in Northampton any longer. And and because it's been around for 10, 12 years, that name is going to travel, whether it's in Schenectady or, you right. know, the Timbuktu. The name was established. The, and, yeah. yeah, I mean, right. we're, you know, we're here to serve the whole valley and beyond and, you know, well, connect well, that to regard, regional, manager regional audiences. Lincoln, manager Lincoln Allen, in the two minutes we have left. Sure. What are the plans for the Drake in the next year of its existence? Yeah, so, you know, we, we aim to continue. I think that, you know, the, the biggest thing we're working on is just to continue bringing um, a, a wide variety of artists um, that kind of speak to different pockets of the community that we're, you know, trying to bring in audiences into the room. Um, we're still seeing people that say, oh, I this is the first show I've been to. You know, we see that a lot. So, you know, as people, you know, we're seeing a lot of repeat repeat um, concert goers as well, which is great to see. But, um, yeah, we've got a lot of a lot of big names coming up. Um, we've got Tony Trishka in a couple of weeks. We've got Lee Fields. Well, I just want to say, Tony will be on our show tomorrow. Oh, excellent. Talk about his Earl Jam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's, um, that's coming up May 6th. Um, so, yeah, tons of great shows. Uh, probably too many to plug here. But, 
I think that's that's the aim is to keep bringing, um, you know, bringing the quality of, of shows up, but also like stay true to um, the the local programming that we're doing, community and um, you know local bands supporting local music as well. Yeah. So go to the drakeamherst.org to look at this great lineup that Lincoln Allen, the managing director of the Drake, is talking to us about, and go out and support live music. Yeah, and I want one quick point. Mm-hmm. The more the Drake prospers, the better it is for all the venues because it makes Western Mass a destination for all these fabulous musicians. Right. The more there is, the more there will Someone be. Someone said all ships rise earlier, and that's that's what we're hoping to do. We Amen. sell experiences, according <laughs> to Bill Newman here in Western Massachusetts. I just want to thank you, Ruth, for bringing Lincoln Allen, the manager of the Drake. Folks, if you haven't been there, it's a great place. It's a great venue. It's really friendly. People in the next uh, table are just really happy to see you there. So, Thanks for having me on. It is a pleasure, Lincoln. And thank you all for joining us on Talk to Talk. Remember, we're all trying to walk the walk. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org, or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, The Literacy Project is the place for you. WHMP Northampton.